Well, if you could describe uh, a service that was me geeking out, uh, it, it would be this one, right? We started off with like uh, a U2 cover, and, and now we have Chris Farley. Um, and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s, and so my lunchroom conversation was full of debriefing the latest Chris Farley sketch from the weekend, uh, right? We, were talk, we, we talk about this. I, I remember this one. This is uh, a clip from the uh, SNL uh, 25th anniversary episode, uh, but I remember this one live. I remember, honestly, all of Chris Farley's sketches live. Uh, I loved Chris Farley. He was probably one of my favorite SNL actors among kind of a, a, a small group. But it's a little different watching this clip post-1997. If you are at all uh, a fan, um, or even just kind of aware of the story, you know how this ended for Chris Farley. Uh, At 33 years old, dead of an overdose, alone in a hotel room. It's tragic. And and as the story kind of began to unfold, and, and you learned more about who Chris Farley the man was, what became increasingly uncomfortable for people like me, who spent so much time laughing at this image of a person, right? This, this self-deprecating person who is constantly kind of, you know, smacking himself and talking about how stupid he is and falling over things and destroying furniture. That guy is realizing that the on-screen persona really wasn't that much different than the real-life one. That for all of his gifts and talents and fame, Farley was really uncomfortable in his own skin. Really thought poorly of himself. Didn't, didn't see himself as amounting to much. In fact, most of his career was about trying to convince people that he was worthwhile, lovable. Towards the end of his life, his friend and fellow SNL alum, uh, David Spade, would say it got so bad that Farley would actually, he, he would hire prostitutes and take them out to dinner and introduce them as his girlfriend because he simply wanted someone to spend time with. There's a, there's a sketch that's quintessential Chris Farley. In fact, it's the one that kind of rocketed him into fame. If you're familiar with Chris Farley or Saturday Night Live, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I say the word Chippendales. There's a, and I know if you're not, you're like, where is he going with this one? This is uncomfortable. Um, but there's a sketch where it's, it's Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze, and they're both trying out for a, a Chippendales dancing position that's available. And uh, if you're not familiar with Chris Farley, he's a fairly, uh, you saw him in the picture, he's kind of a, a heavy guy. And in this sketch, eventually it kind of it culminates in the two of them dancing shirtless. And so, you know, you can imagine, if you haven't seen it mentally, you have the chiseled Patrick Swayze and the less chiseled Chris Farley. But again, kind of Monday morning quarterbacking, looking back on that period, it's interesting to listen to people reflect on what happened in that sketch. You know, some would argue it's what made Chris, right? It's, it's the, the thing that drew everybody in that said, this guy is hilarious, and it really is. But there were others who knew Chris well who don't see it the same way. 
Chris Rock, who is a, uh, you know, obviously famous comedian, was a friend of Farley's and a fellow SNL um, actor at the time, said this in a, in a book called The Chris Farley Show, which was written by uh, Chris's father and brother, I think 2008, a number of years after he'd passed. They quote Chris Rock as saying this, Chippendales was a weird sketch. I always hated it. The joke of it is, basically, we can't hire you because you're fat. There's no comic twist to it. It's just bleeping mean. Chris wanted so much to be liked. As funny as that sketch was, it's one of the things that killed him. It really is. Something happened right then. And again, as someone who remembers watching that sketch live and howling with laughter. It's sobering to read this reflection and to think about what was really going on for this man at this time. Wanting so badly to be loved, to be liked, that he's willing to draw all of this negative attention to his body. But even in so doing, it just compounds this feeling of, see, that's really who I am. I'm just this fat slob that people want to laugh at. Ultimately, the story of Chris Farley is a tragic tale of an incredibly talented individual who just felt like he wasn't worth anything. We're continuing a series that we started last week that we're calling Resolve. And over the next couple of weeks, we're taking kind of four weeks as we start off the new year, where we're looking at four different things that I'm convinced that if we resolve to do, if we, if we choose to do as individuals and as a community of faith, will have transformative effects on our lives and on the lives of people around us. And those things are, last week we talked about growing in love for God. This week we're going to talk about growing in love for ourselves. Next week, love for our neighbor, and the week after that, love for our enemy. Now, talking about loving yourself is kind of a weird thing to talk about on a Sunday morning. And my guess is, if you're kind of sitting there listening, that you're probably on one or two places. You might be there going, yes, this is so important. We really need to talk about this. I'm so glad we're there. But you might be, and I'm sure many of you are, and I can resonate with this, you might be a little skeptical. Like, really? So this is going to be kind of a self-help morning? This is going to be like the, the time where we have to sit there and listen about how, how every kid should get a trophy, right? Like, no, no matter how they do My, my wife just went to a, a gymnastics competition and, uh, with, with our youngest daughter, and she was relaying to me uh, about how they had this, this great ceremony at the end that was forever long. Because every single child who participated had to get a trophy, right? And there's something about that that you can say, oh, that's cool. But there's also a part that we get that, like, really? Like, everybody has to get a trophy? Really? Or, or, you know, we recognize that in some circles, you can no longer be honest. You you can't say what you, you think because you're too concerned about how others will feel. And so we're not truthful, we're just nice. And while we understand, you know, you can be a jerk about things and you shouldn't be a jerk about things, really, aren't we just a little bit too politically correct? 
And I, I understand that concern, believe me. And, and I think we can swing widely on this one. Uh, again, if you'll humor me for a second, and uh, this is really about, if you don't know me, this is about as geeking out as I will get on a Sunday morning. But it, if I could illustrate these two poles with some characters that I think do this well, I think we, we all kind of, there's this wide uh, continuum that we swing on with this whole, like, how you view yourself that's somewhere between, let's say, a Ron Burgundy and a Tommy Callahan. Now, if you're not familiar with the references, um, you know, Ron Burgundy is this, uh, this persona Will Ferrell plays in the movie Anchorman. And he's kind of like the stereotypical, just like, you know, celebrity character who's totally into himself. I mean, kind of the famous interaction he has with his love interest played by Christina Applegate. He walks up to her, and he's like, I'm kind of a big deal. Right? People know me. And that's just who he is. He's this completely arrogant, self-absorbed person who can't see anyone else because he's so consumed with himself. On the other extreme, we have the, again, with the Chris Farley, the, the Tommy Callahans of the world, or, or Tommy Boy, if you're familiar with the film Tommy Boy. And again, he, here's this person who's kind of desperately trying to do something worthwhile, but can't stop beating himself up over how much of an idiot he is. You know, it's constantly, the, the whole, you saw it in the sketch, that's kind of Chris Farley's character. Right? It's like, I'm an idiot. Right? And over and over again, this kind of negative self-talk. And it's funny on screen in both cases. But caricatures work for a reason. Right? Like, what's a caricature? It's, it's a drawing of someone. It's an image of someone that's exaggerated. Right? So there's a longer chin. There's bigger ears. There's a bigger nose. But it works because it resembles the person at some level. And these caricatures work. Because at some level, they resemble people that we actually encounter in everyday life. I mean, you, you know the, the Ron Burgundies of the world. You might work with them, right? The person who is so self-absorbed that they never listen to anybody else's opinion. They don't take suggestions from other people. No one else is ever right. And when they are, they never get credit. Or maybe you, you know someone who's like Tommy Callahan who, even though they're actually a pretty cool person who has some real gifts, they're always kind of apologizing for their existence. Every sentence begins with, I'm sorry. And you find yourself, whenever you're with them, having to be like, no, 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 it's okay, really. Like, it's okay. You're cool. We can go to these kind of vast extremes And honestly, most of us are somewhere in the middle. But very few of us actually have a very healthy understanding, picture of who we are as people and what it means to live full lives loving ourselves well. Not in a way where we suddenly become the center of the universe, but in a way that actually reflects what's true and right about ourselves and the world. So I want to take just a minute and kind of look through, uh, because I don't think this is just, you know... (laughs) All right, I think we're safe now. I don't think think this is just kind of self-help psychobabble. I think this is actually true to, 
to how God created us to experience life and flourishing personally and as a community and in the world. Okay, so, so where is that coming from? I want to look at a couple of scriptures with you. We're just going to kind of bounce through, and I, I want to paint a little bit of a picture. So beginning in the beginning of everything, and we go back here a lot, and, and that's purposeful. In this, this book called Genesis, it means origins, in the beginning of the Bible, we, we learn about who God is and what it means to be human from the very beginning. And, and in chapter 1, we hear about God creating all things, and we read this. I, I'm going to read it from a version called The Message. It's a little kind of different language, more contemporary, but I really like the way that this is framed. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. The first thing that we learn about what it means to be human is that we are people who are stamped with the divine image. That being human means that you reflect the creator in the world. And what's remarkable about this is that at this time, this, this time this ancient text is written, it's a highly patriarchal society. Women are, are, are little more than chattel, right? They're kind of used to reproduce. They're seen as property, essentially. And yet, the author, inspired by the Spirit, mentions that humans were created male and female to reflect the image of God. Nobody was talking like that at the time. That there's this sense of God's reality, who God is, God's nature, is expressed fully through the diversity that is humanity. So that it's not just through men that we experience the image of God, but through men and women. Through people of all different ethnicities, backgrounds, families of origins, socioeconomic experiences, Everybody, this vast diversity of humanity, reflects the image of God. This was core. I, you know, I went back and forth. This is obviously, you know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I thought about, oh, man, shouldn't we be talking about loving your enemy on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend? Like, that kind of makes more sense. And, and you can make a case for that. But I actually think this is, I, I know, this is core to what drove Martin Luther King Jr. to see segregation as injustice, right? It's it's this sense that how can you say that one group of people should have more rights than another when all of us reflect the image of the Creator? When the divine stamp is on every person, how dare one group of people tell another that they're not worth, they're not equal? This was the driving force behind the move to, to abolish segregation, the civil rights movement. This was core to King's message. And it's core to the biblical understanding of what it means to be human. We were created to reflect the image of God. But sadly, it doesn't just kind of stop there. It continues. And if you're familiar with the story at all, 
pretty quickly we find out that these humans who reflect the divine image reject the divine creator. Um, so these humans who, who reflect the divine image pretty quickly reject the divine leader, their Lord, and kind of go their own way. They make their own choices. They, they, they choose to be their own gods and reject the God they reflect. And when they do that, they take on all sorts of new realities, new limitations. They experience for the first time what it means to be mortal, to have limits. And this is, you know, kind of both in a a moral, kind of ethical way. We see ways that they are, you know, kind of self-centered, greedy, idolatrous, lustful, prideful. But it's also just in a practical way. They become people who experience death, sickness, frustration, the normal, everyday stuff that you and I experience as humans. Limitations. They are, no, they are no longer fully reflecting God. Though they still do bear the divine image, they struggle. Just like us. Later, a biblical writer, the, the brother of Jesus, would write, it's James, in his book, James, writes, we all stumble in many ways. It's a simple yet really profound reality that we experience as humans, right? Like, we just all stumble. We all, we all have limits. We all have limitations. None of us is perfect. And yet, as we see in Jesus, it's really clear that despite our limitations, despite our shortcomings, our inability to be everything we wish we could be, we are loved. Really quickly, uh, Paul, one of the New Testament writers, says this in his letter to a church in Rome. He says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still people who were messing up, choosing badly, being self-centered, greedy, idolatrous people, Christ died for us. Not the you that you wish you could be, not the like fixed up, better version of yourself that you kind of want to be, but the you that is. The messed up, broken, limited you. Or loved. And it's demonstrated in Christ, in his, his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That it's in Christ's death that we understand that even with our limitations, we are loved. But all of that said, as, as limited, broken human creatures, we're not just given a pass to kind, of, to kind of sit around and lick our wounds and feel bad about ourselves, walk on eggshells around each other and make sure that we were really nice so as not to hurt each other's feelings. But there's actually something about recognizing our limitations, accepting who we are, even in our limited state, that enables us to be who we were created to be. Paul says it this way in Romans, uh, kind of the same letter that I read just a minute ago, but a couple of chapters later. 
Romans chapter 12. He's writing to, uh, again, this is a church. It's a group of people like this coming together to worship, figure out what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus together. And he says this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Now notice what Paul says in this passage. He says that each of us needs to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Now this word sober is kind of, it's the opposite of the image of caricature. To have sober judgment is to have, is to have serious, accurate reflection. Not exaggerated. Not exaggerated one direction or the other. But a an accurate, right view of yourself. And Paul says this is actually critical for what it means for us to be the body of Christ. This is the image that he uses when he talks about the church, the group of people who are coming together around the life and teachings of Jesus, learning to live that out. He says, you are the body of Christ in the world. This is how Christ does his work in the world. This is how people come to know God, to to be in relationship with their creator. This is how justice and righteousness comes in the world. This is how things are made new in the world. Through you, normal, broken, limited people. This is how God is working. But it begins, Paul says, by recognizing your limitations, by accepting the fact that you are a limited creature. But even within those limits, you have been given gifts. Now, in our culture, it's pretty popular to talk about kind of breaking limits. Like, we, we like to think in terms of having no limits. Um, that, that, you know, limits are just kind of something that's in your head that you need to kind of push through. Uh, this is popularized by... Um, People, a lot, a lot of athletes, really, right? These, these stories of people going from kind of obscurity to immense popularity. And if they can do it, you can do it, right? So I, I think of the, the book by Michael Phelps. Um, the title of it is actually No Limits, The Will to Succeed. Uh, and you might be familiar with Michael Phelps. He is the most decorated Olympian in history. Uh, I believe 22 medals over the course of three Olympics. And this book is full of quotes like this. You can't put a limit on anything. The more you dream, the farther you get. Now, on the one hand, that is a great statement to go on a, on a poster like in one of my kids' rooms, right? And there's something really true about the fact that human beings have a remarkable capacity to work hard and push through things that otherwise might seem like barriers. That's really true. But we also have to recognize that there are different kinds of barriers, right? Like there are some barriers that you come up against that are really like painted styrofoam walls. 
And what you need to do is punch through that wall to get to the other side. However, there are other barriers that you encounter that are actual walls. They're like made of brick. And the more you punch them, the more you experience the pain that comes from running up against something that's simply an actual limitation. And I think some of what Paul is getting at as he lays out this picture of a body of people who are all gifted really differently but have to use their gifts together to make a difference in the world is this understanding that limits aren't something that are shameful. Accepting that you have limitations, that you're not Superman or Wonder Woman isn't something to feel shame about. It's something to embrace, to accept as we learn to use who we are, what we do have for the good of others. I mean, think about it. Even Jesus, we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Well, if Jesus was fully human, then he accepted what it means to be human. And we learn this as we read scripture, right? Like Jesus got tired. There are moments we see Jesus being thirsty or hungry. There are times when Jesus would say, there are certain things about where all of this is going that I don't actually know. Only God knows. Well, does that diminish who we think Jesus is? Well, no, not at all. It actually is the reality of If Jesus was, in fact, fully human, that's what it means to be human. You have limitations. You can't do it all. And the sooner we begin to be realistic, to have sober judgment about ourselves and who we really are, the sooner we can use those gifts in a way that's good for everyone. So I think if we're going to be healthy, whole people who are actually recognizing and using our gifts to make a difference for others in 2016, it starts with accepting our limits and learning to be thankful for who God made us. A couple of thoughts on, on why. I think when we begin to, to recognize what our limitations are, to accept kind of who exactly it is that we were created to be, warts and all, it tells us, it reminds us of a couple of things. Number one, we are dependent creatures. We're dependent, number one, on our creator. That we actually were not made to do it on our own. Even though that's a very popular narrative, we would love to think that we don't need anyone, it's not reality. We were created to thrive as we were dependent on the one who made us. But not just dependent on God, we were also created to be dependent on others. No one is an island. You were not made to be the best at everything. It's impossible. And if not being the best at everything brings you shame, well, that's not sober judgment. That's not right understanding of what it means to be human. We were made to be dependent on other people, and we will only thrive as we learn to recognize our limitations, but the gift of other people in our lives who don't have the same limitations. They have different gifts, different limitations, and when we learn to work together, we can accomplish far more together 
than we can on our own. And our lives will be far richer than they would be if we simply did it all ourselves. I learned this really quickly when we moved here and we bought a house in, uh, in Wyomissing. And I don't know if you've ever done the thing where you're like, you know, if you're, if you're house buying and you're looking at fixer-uppers and kind of move-in condition. And I don't know about you, but every time, you know, we've moved a couple of times, and every time we move into a house and we describe it moving in as move-in condition, immediately upon moving in, we realize there are like 23 things that need to happen before we can actually live here. Um, and so that happened when we, we moved into our, our current home. And very quickly, I had to kind of recognize that my limits came with anything that kind of remotely resembled a tool. All right? So, I mean, it just, you know, I would pick them up and not be quite sure what to do with them. And if I tried to use them in some capacity, I would typically create more issues that then I would need other tools to fix that I didn't understand. And so, as you can see, this would snowball. Um, And so, pretty quickly, I kind of learned to identify, oh, there are other people who are really good at this stuff, that, that maybe I could ask for help. Um, and so I began to do that. And there were a number of people here who, as we got to know them and talk to them, I would say, hey, would you have any interest in, in coming and helping me do this thing at my house? And which, that was kind of code for, look, I'll buy like, like pizza and drinks and I'll hold the ladder. Um, can, you, can you take care of everything else? And it worked pretty well for a while. Um, but... But the reason I tell that story is because that was actually key in me building friendships here. This is long before I, I, I was employed by Coinos, I worked here. Part of how I began to build friendships is by letting people know I needed help and allowing people to use their gifts in a way that served me, built relationship in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise. This is, this is part of why we encourage you as men to get out and serve on Saturday and these different opportunities we're going to have for men and women to serve together because as you're working together and using your gifts alongside of people who are gifted differently than you are and you need to help each other, relationships happen in a way that don't happen in other settings. I mean, this is why you find people who like serve in the military or, or go on kind of cross-cultural trips together, typically come back and in relatively short periods of time have these deep, meaningful relationships. Well, why? Well, because they all had to depend on each other in really significant ways. And I think part of how we're going to thrive as humans, as individuals and as a community, is learning to work together to do the things of God, to love people, to serve people, to make a difference in our world together, recognizing, accepting our limitations and inviting others to walk alongside of us who are gifted differently. So it it reminds us that we're dependent creatures. Uh, It also, uh, accepting our limits, frees us. If we get to the place where we begin to kind of accept, be content with what our limitations are, it frees us from being jealous, from envy, from looking at other people and constantly wishing like, ah, man, what? How is it that they've kind of ascended up the ladder so quickly and I haven't? Why can't I be more like them? Or or why can't I do everything that she can do? Why does she seem to have so many talents and I I just don't? That's a horrible place to live. Much more freeing is the recognition that, yes, I can't do all of that, but I have this to offer. I can do this. This is who God has made me to be. And when we, we become comfortable and accept that reality, we're free to live with gratitude 
for who we are, for the gift of our lives, and for the gift that our lives are to the people around us. And then finally, accepting our limits is critical in enabling us to love other people. Learning to kind of value who you are, to be content and grateful for who you are, is critical for you developing empathy to appreciate other people for who they are. If you're not willing to accept your limits, it becomes difficult to accept other people's limits as well. But if you're honest and accepting of your own, it's a lot easier to have grace with people who are bumping up against their own limitations. So finally, how can we begin to cultivate this? Uh, What are some things you can do to to start to to grow in your acceptance of yourself? And and I I need a little caveat here as I'm talking about this. Um, If any of this is helpful for you, uh, I appreciated Dander, who was up here earlier. I picked his brain on some of this stuff. Like, what kinds of things would you like to say to people if we were talking about this? So if there's something you're walking away and you're like, that's really helpful, um, I want to hear more, please come talk to me. I may point you in Dan's direction. He might have some more helpful things to say about that. Um, if there's anything that you're like, that's completely unhelpful, well, I probably came up with that, and uh, you can come talk to me about that. Um, so <laughs> what can we do to begin to, uh, to recognize and accept our limits? A couple of suggestions real quickly. Um, number one, we need to be people who are, who are better about practicing self-reflection. Part of why we are doing this uh, Faith in the, the Enneagram workshop is because we're convinced this is a great opportunity for us as individuals and collectively as a community to do some good self-reflection. This is simply a, a self-assessment tool that helps give you a sense of kind of who you are, how you're wired, both in kind of like the, the limits, the challenges that you face, but also the opportunities kind of the gifts that you have. Um, it's, a, it's a super helpful tool, especially if you're someone who's looking to kind of grow and develop personally and spiritually. And I'm excited to have my, my friend who's a, a therapist in Baltimore. She's done these for churches before. She's going to be coming up and leading us through a day. So I really want to encourage you as a great kind of maybe first step, or maybe you've been on this journey for a while, um, this could be a great next step for you. Uh, to sign up and join us for the Faith in the Enneagram workshop here on the 13th. It's going to be a great day together. It's 25 bucks, which is really, really cheap. But if, if that's something that's a struggle for you, if you're like, I'd go, but man, I just can't. We just, we just don't have it right now. Please talk to me. Don't let that be the thing that keeps you uh, from coming. We, think this, we really want this to be a gift to you as individuals. And we think if we begin to become a people who are more aware of both our limits and our gifts as individuals, it will only enhance our ability as a community of faith to do what we feel like we're called to do, reach more and more people who feel marginalized, who feel like there is no space at the table for them, to continue to reach them together with all of our gifts and limits. So check that out. Please come. And you can invite a friend. This is actually, this would be great for your friends who might be interested in doing that, even if they're not people who would identify as followers of Jesus. Um, this could be a really great opportunity for them. Um, So reflection. Uh, Number two, self-care. We really need to become people who are better about taking care of ourselves. Uh, And that goes for uh, physically, emotionally, intellectually. Uh, You know, along with the no-limit kind of narrative of our culture, we have this kind of, this desire to not need to care for ourselves. I think some of it is our desire to always be young too, right? Like my wife and I have this conversation all the time where I'm like, I don't know why I'm so tired all the time. And she'll say, well, I don't know. Let's think. How many hours of sleep have you gotten this week? 
And I said, I don't know. I think I pulled, you know, five and a half, six hours a night. She's like, okay, when you were like 22, that's cool. You're not 22 anymore. And of course, I don't want to hear that, but it's true, right? Like we begin to hit limitations and we know that those are actually things we need to pay attention to. What do we need physically? Sleep, exercise, eating. What do we need emotionally? Are you someone who needs time to yourself to recharge? Do you need to be getting around people who give you energy and there's no space like that in your life? Some of the hangouts coming up could be great opportunities if you're like, I just need space to go hang out with some people. This week, next week, there's some great opportunities to hang out with some women, hang out with some guys. Um, Really encourage you to check those out. Um, Or intellectually, you might be someone who really struggles with the words, I don't know. Sometimes it is really helpful and freeing to be able to say, I don't know. We need to do good self-care, and we need to recognize what we need. Great quote by Parker Palmer, who's an activist, author, says, Self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer to others. I can't say it any better than that. I think that's pretty remarkable. And then finally, I think we need to learn to get honest feedback from other people. We need to have people in our lives who we trust and who we give space to say hard things to us, who can say, you know what? I get that you really want to do that, but that's just not you. That's not who you are. You're not good at that stuff. You're great at this. Why don't you go in this direction? Why don't you try this? Maybe you need help here. We need relationships like that where people can be honest with us, can challenge us. Um, We need to invite people like that into our lives to give space, to get some honest feedback. And I'm convinced that if this is something we prioritize, if this is something that we make, that we resolve to do this year, to do some good work on learning what our limitations are, but also what our gifts are, and accepting who we are, being content with that, it'll transform us individually, and it'll transform our ability to care for people around us. We're going to kind of move into a time now where we take communion together. And, and this is simply a time where we, we take a little bread, a little juice, to remember this reality that our creator, whose image we reflect, but whose, whose ruling we reject, came to us in the person of Jesus, laid down his life, rose again, so that we can have life with the one whose image we were made to reflect. Father, thank you that, um, that each one of us in our unique way reflects you. And thank you that none of us does that fully, that we are all limited creatures who need you and need each other. Would you give us the courage to accept that this year, to to begin to take a good, sober look at who we are, and to learn to be grateful, and to begin to accept our limitations, and to, to embrace our gifts, and use them in a way that makes a difference in the lives of the people around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.